We'll turn with me to Mark 13. Mark 13, today as we finish up this very interesting and admittedly somewhat difficult to study for passage of Scripture uh, in the book of Mark as we continue through this gospel together. Mark chapter 13, and in a moment we'll be reading in verse 28. You know, we form our life around what we know and what we don't know. Both certainties and uncertainties. But the certainties of our life, when we think through, what are those? What are the certainties? What do I know? Those things can cause us to both plan and prioritize. Right? You know a deadline is approaching. Right? Our teens, you've got that test coming up or that thing that you've been putting off. And uh, that's a certainty, as far as we know. I know you're hoping the Lord will come before then, but uh, you can't always count on that. The certainties of life cause us to plan and prioritize. Right? They say the only two things certain in life is death and taxes. And uh, both of those cause us to plan and prioritize, don't they? The certainties of life give us a clear understanding of what we need to be living for. I know this is true, or I know this is coming, therefore... This is how I orient my life. But what about uncertainties? Don't the uncertainties of life affect how you live? What do they do? Well, if the certainties of life cause us to plan and prioritize, we might say that the uncertainties of life cause us to stay vigilant and be careful. You can't completely plan for all the uncertainties that may come your way, but they, they definitely keep you from being careless. And a Christian's life, I think, should both be driven by certainty and uncertainty. And there's probably no better doctrine or teaching from Scripture that combines both certainty and uncertainty than the return of Christ, as we'll see in our passage today. But before we look at our passage, let's catch up a little bit, as today we'll be looking in Mark chapter 13, verse 28. This is at the very end of this chapter, and if you haven't been with us the past two Sundays, and you've got to have a sense of where we've been so far. The beginning of chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark Jesus tells his disciples a very troubling thing. They're looking at the beautiful temple, and he points to that temple and tells his disciples there will come a time when this temple will be destroyed. And this troubles the disciples. They're bothered by this. And in their minds, they think, well, if the temple is going to be destroyed, that's got to mean that the end of the world is coming. And we, we've looked at how often the end of our world we automatically assume it's the end of the world. And this is how the disciples were approaching it. The, the temple is going to be destroyed, obviously. It's the end of the world. And so they asked Jesus, when is the sign of these things to come? When is the sign of the end? And Jesus sits down with them and gives them a very lengthy teaching on what they should expect and what they shouldn't expect. And for the first portion of the chapter, he tells the disciples, you're going to see a lot of things in your future. You're going to see wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see disaster. You're going to see famine. You're going to see deceivers springing up saying, I'm the Christ. I am the Messiah. And he tells his disciples, the end is not yet. You've got a long way ahead of you. I know that I've prophesied the destruction of the temple, but for you, you have to realize that you have a difficult road ahead. And he starts to paint a picture of the course of human history from the time of his death up until the current day, and we even see this in our culture today, wars and rumors of wars, trouble, chaos. It's so easy for us to say, well, then obviously Christ is coming tomorrow. And, and just as he does his, with his disciples, he, he encourages us to stop and to remember 
that just because these things are in place does not mean that the end is coming. And then in verse 14 of our same chapter, he then points to a sign pertaining to the temple that does indicate the end of all things and is called the abomination of desolation. And we looked at the book of Daniel, we looked at other passages of scripture that point to exactly what that's referring to. And when something happens, when this abominable desolation takes place in the temple, that's the clock is ticking and Christ's definitive plan for the course of human history unfolds. And then, just before our passage that we're reading today, he points to the end of all things, when Christ does come and the Son of Man appears in the clouds with glory and power and collects his people from the ends of heaven to the ends of the earth, and he rules and reigns. And even as we've been singing this morning, we, we long for that day. We, we pray and ask God when he might return. And it's in that context, in that setting, that we read our passage this morning. Look with me in Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Jesus says this, Now learn a parable from the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So ye in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to every man his work and commendeth the porter to watch. Watch therefore, for you know not when the master of the house comes, at evening or at midnight or at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Can we pray and ask God's guidance as we look at this passage together? Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word does not pass away, that it is eternal and is the thing that we can count on and we can look to for hope and stability, even when our lives are full of instability. I pray you'd guide us in your word today, that we would understand it, and that we would take that understanding and embrace it so that we may live by its truths. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, before we jump into this passage in detail, let's, let's get a sense of what's going on here. Let's see if we can understand this passage a little bit before we, we take it piece by piece. We're going to divide this passage into two parts, okay? So verses 28 through 31, we're going to see that Jesus is talking about something knowable, all right? So there's the certainty. 28 through 31, he's going to talk about something knowable, and he's going to use an illustration that highlights observable indicators in the present that point toward future events. What's that illustration? It's a fig tree. He says, from the lesson of the fig tree, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you, and here's that key word, you know that summer is near. You see the change of seasons. We don't have change of seasons down here, but I just came up from Michigan where they do have change of seasons. And uh, when you see the change of leaves, the change of colors, or buds starting to sprout, you know where in the life cycle of that tree it is. 
You know when summer's coming. You know when fall is coming. You know when winter is coming by those indicators. This is what he's using as an illustration here. When the branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Verse 29, when you see these things take place, here he's going to draw from the illustration of the fig tree to what he's referring to and teaching about. When you see these things take place, so that's like the branches becoming tender and putting out leaves, you know that he is near at the very gates. So in other words, he's saying when certain things happen, you'll know that the clock is ticking. That's what's that verses 28 through 31 is saying. Lesson of the fig tree, when this happens, you know that the end is near. You know at that point the clock is ticking. He's talking about certainty. Verses 32 through 37, he switches to talk about something that's unknowable. And again, he uses another illustration. And he uses an illustration that highlights the vigilance needed to be ready for an unknown event talks about a master that leaves his house and entrusts his house and the duties to his servants, and they don't know when he's going to come back. Verse 32 says, For concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. There's the uncertainty. Verse 33, For you do not know when the time will come. Verse 35, You do not know when the master of the house will come. The second half is talking about uncertainty. So of the first passage, it talks about when certain things happen, you know the clock is ticking. Well, what do we not know? We don't know when the clock will start ticking. And that's the differentiation in this passage. And so we as his followers must respond appropriately to both what we know, what we're certain about as Christians, and what we're uncertain about. We need to live both a life of certainty and a life of uncertainty. And we we're going to see this morning, how does that change our lives, even this week? But let's look first of all on how we are called as Christians to live a life of certainty. As we've read this passage this morning, and especially if you were in our small groups this morning, I'm sure you realized there's some tricky phrases in these verses. And we'll dig into those. And you can tell me afterwards if I satisfactorily answered those or not. Uh, but again, like I mentioned, this passage is, is full of some, some tricky passages, and I'll do my best to walk through it together. As we consider this portion of our text today that explains what we know, let's try to understand what he's referring to. He talks about these things, these things. We've seen the illustration of a fig tree to highlight the observable indicators pointing to a certain future event. And so we have to understand what are these things. When you see these things happen, you know that he is very near, right at the gates. What are these things? Well, when you see a, here's a fancy term, demonstrative pronoun, you're like, Aaron, really? You're talking about grammar in church. Yes, I am. In fact, I, I, I used to tell the teens in youth group that the one class in school, you know what the one class in school that will help you most in your spiritual walk? English and grammar. Did you know that? Because it's there you learn how to read and how to understand and see how sentences fit together and things like demonstrative pronouns and conjunctions and all this stuff. And there's nothing better than that to help you understand and read the scripture. But that's a side note. Demonstrative pronoun. What is a demonstrative pronoun? These, those. Well, when you see that, it's referring to something else close by that it's referring to called a 
I heard it, antecedent, there we go, all right? Antecedent, what's an antecedent? Antecedent is something that the demonstrative pronoun refers to. Okay, enough of that. When you see these, what are these things? Well, it's the events he just finished describing. Remember what we just read in the passage. We just heard about the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. And then right after that says, when you see these things take place, know that he is, at, he is very near at the door. And so he talks about the certainty of the end. So when you see these things take place, the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation, you know that it is near. What's that? It's the return of Christ. In the Greek, you have a simple verb, is, in a third person form. And so there's no pronoun there. Some of your English versions might say, it is near. Some of your English versions might say, he is near. And that's basically, you look at the context and try to figure out which one is best, because there's only a verb there. There's no noun. But I think the context points to he more than it, which many of your English versions may say. So how near is Christ? How near is the return of Christ? Well, Jesus gives us two phrases to describe it. When these last events are taking place, Jesus is close, and he gives two indications of how close he is. When we see the abomination of desolation, when we see the great tribulation, he is at the very gates. He's right outside the door, about to enter in. And then he gives a second phrase to describe just how near he is. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Place. Now, here's one phrase that has presented a little bit of confusion for a lot of people, and the question is this. What does this generation mean? Have you wondered that? Because remember, we just talked about, and I've been trying to make the case, that these things are referring to the end times, which the disciples will not experience. They're going to experience the wars and rumors of wars and the desolation and the deception, but yet here he says, this generation will not pass away till all these things are accomplished. Does this mean that Jesus is mistakenly thinking that the second coming would happen in the disciples' lifetime? I mean, that, that certainly is what it appears. This generation won't pass away. But there's a couple reasons why I think this can't be the case. We see in a couple of verses that Jesus states that he does not know the day nor the hour, but only the Father. So why would he place it within the current generation if he does not know the day nor the hour? And Jesus is also trying to explain how quickly these events will take place leading up to Christ's return. So how quickly will Christ return after the onset of these indicating signs? Within the same generation. So when he says this generation, I believe he's referring to the generation who sees these signs. This generation who sees the abomination of desolation, that generation will not pass away until they see the return of Christ in glory. That's how close he is at the doors, because that generation, this generation, will not pass away. And don't worry, we'll talk about the, what does it mean that he doesn't know the end of the, the day, nor the hour of the sun? We'll talk about that in a little bit. So he's saying this is how close he is. He summarizes his prophecy but a, with a stark but certain phrase, where he says, heaven and earth will pass away. The end of all things is certain. We talked at the beginning that we should live our life with certainty. And what should we be certain of? Heaven and earth are going to pass away. 
It has been written. But while all these things pass away, there is one thing that remains. And what is that one thing? It is the word of God. Don't we sometimes live our life as if this world is the only thing that will last forever? And we prioritize our life around this world, heaven and earth. But in contrast to heaven and earth, Jesus declares that it is his, his only word that is eternal. And it's important to note that for Jesus to make such a claim about his own words, do you know what he's doing here? He's asserting his divine authority. Listen to these passages. Psalm 119, verse 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And for Jesus to say, My words will stand forever while heaven and earth will pass away, what is he saying? My words are God's words because I am God. Jesus proclaims the certainty of the end to his disciples, followed by the certainty and the authority of his own words. And I think this is the point that he's trying to make to his disciples. There is only one thing that is sure and lasting, and it is my words. And what a welcoming and comforting truth for these disciples to hear after everything Jesus has just said. He's talked about dark and troubling things, not only about the last days, but about the disciples' immediate future. Wouldn't you be prone to discouragement after hearing all that? When you look at the dark days ahead, what gives you confidence and trust? It is this truth. God's word endures and stands forever, and you can trust it. This is a truth we find all throughout Scripture for the believer. This world is passing away, but God stays the same, and his word stays the same. And therefore, if that's true, then God and his word is the only thing worth living for. I want to go back to that question I asked at the beginning. What are the certainties that dictate your planning and your priorities? Or maybe we could reverse that question. If I looked at your planning and your priorities what would I conclude are the certainties in your life? Is it, is, it, is it the job that you have? Is it your family? Is it your own pleasure? What in your mind are the certainties that drive and fuel everything you do? Perhaps you're living as if this world is the only thing permanent, and so all your planning and all your priorities revolve around your life here and now. Is the certainty in your life that other person? And so everything you do is geared in that direction. And while God gives us good gifts and gives us great opportunities and joys and pleasures in life that we can thank him for, our passage tells us there's only one thing permanent, only one thing that endures beyond this world. It is God's eternal word. And the question I want to ask is, is that the certainty in your life? And does your life show that that is a certainty in your life? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And in this context, he's saying the end will come. This heaven, the heaven and earth will pass away. It will melt away. 
This world is temporary, and you can be certain of that. But you can have confidence that my truth remains. What difference does it make to have the certainty of God's word and God's plan in our lives? If we truly take to heart the fact that this world, heaven and earth, will pass away, what difference does it make? Well, if, if you're here this morning and you are living for this world, then this truth points out the foolishness of that. What do we read about in 1 John chapter 2, 15-17? Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And then what do we read next? The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are you living for this world that is passing away? Is that your certainty? Christ tells his disciples, the end is certain. This world is passing away, but my word remains. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you are discouraged. Maybe you, it's very clear to you that this world is passing away. That there's no illusion in your mind about the temporal nature of this life. Through death, sickness, discouragement, betrayal, everything around you already feels like it's passing away. And, and maybe you've, you've been trying to grab onto things. You've been trying to find some level of certainty in this uncertain life. What does this passage, what does this truth do for us? Well, it comforts you that your trust in God is worth it. That if you cling to God and his eternal word, you will be on stable ground in a very unstable world. And this is exactly what the disciples needed to hear. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 26 through 29, at that time his voice shook the earth, talking about at Mount Sinai when he brought the commandments to the people, but it says, now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's coming a day when everything heaven and earth will be shaken, will be removed. And why are all those things going to be shaken and removed? So that the thing that cannot be shaken stands firm. And then it says these words, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you're clinging to the kingdom of God, if you're clinging to his eternal word, you can rejoice and be grateful that you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You have an eternal hope that cannot be taken away from you. And Jesus looks at his disciples and say, I know that I've been talking about this world passing away and everything you know turning to dust, but my words will last forever. How does certainty impact your life? How does certainty change how you live? What do you consider to be certain? The only thing certain is the word of God that he will come again. The songs that we sang this morning were songs of certainty that there is coming a day 
But also those songs we sang were also songs of uncertainty, weren't they? It may be then, it may be at night, it might be in morning. We don't know. In fact, no one knows. And so as we consider what does it mean to live a life of uncertainty, let's ask the question, what are we uncertain about? We know and we have confidence in God's eternal plan. God has a plan. And so we live a life with a clear perspective and a complete trust in him. But what is unclear and uncertain is when all these things will commence. Once that clock starts ticking, we know what will happen next and when it will happen. But we don't know when the clock will start. This is exactly what he says in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And then he goes on to explain just how uncertain this is. And he makes the point, there's only one person who knows. He says, no one knows, so there's not a human being on this planet who knows when the clock will start. And anyone who claims knowledge of this is contradicting Christ's very words. We talked about this a couple messages ago. Those who try to set the clock, it's going to be on this date. It's going to be in this year. I know, I'm certain. No, you're not. No one knows. In fact, not even the angels in heaven know. And here we see the arrogance of such a statement. I know the day or the hour. The, the angels in heaven don't even know the day or the hour. The angelic hosts who dwell in the very presence of God don't know when the clock will start. They live in anticipation, watching and waiting for the next phase of God's plan. And then he ramps it up even more. No one knows, the angels don't know, nor the sun. Now, what exactly does this mean? Have you been troubled by this phrase? What is Jesus saying? Well, here's the great thing about language. We don't have to rethink a clear meaning. And it clearly says, Jesus says, I don't know. Now, that's troubling. That's a bit of a stumbling block. How can we say that the Son of God, fully God and fully man, doesn't know anything, let alone the day or the hour? The passage, I think, that best explains this would be Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. You may know this passage, but what does it say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. I think it's important to stop and consider what Christ did when he came in human flesh. Scripture tells us some things very clearly that he came fully God, and he came fully man. And whenever we veer away from one of those two truths, we're veering toward false teaching. He is fully God and fully man. And what happened when Jesus took on the form of a servant? He willingly restricted the independent use of some of his attributes. 
We don't believe that Jesus somehow became less God when he became man. In fact, you know the song, uh, And Can It Be? It says, emptied himself of all but love. Do you know that's wrong? He didn't empty himself of all but love. To say that he emptied himself of everything except for his love is to say that he somehow became less God. He maintained his deity. In fact, many songwriters changed the words to, and can it be, that, that he, he emptied himself and came in love because of the troubling nature of that phrase. But he did voluntarily submit himself to the will of the Father and gave up on his own accord the independent use of many of his divine attributes since he was fully human. Now, can we think of some examples of this? God is omnipresent. Was Jesus? He, he was a man, fully man, in one place in time. He was in a human body. Does that mean he's no longer God? No, it just means that he willingly limited the independent use of some of his attributes. We see Jesus completely depending on the Father for everything. Listen to some of these passages. John chapter 5, verse 30. Jesus says this. Think about this. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We see Jesus completely submitting to the Father's will. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And of course, we know in Matthew 26, when he was praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus gave up divine privileges. And why did he do this? So that he might identify with you and me as human beings. He calls us to depend on the Father. And what did he do when he came to earth? He depended on the Father. He calls us to live in the power of the Spirit. And what did he do? We went out into the, the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he went out in the power of the Spirit. And one thing he willingly gave up was the foreknowledge about when the last days would commence. This knowledge was limited strictly to the Father. Jesus, in his humility and his submission to the Father, willingly forfeited that knowledge. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, when Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven after he died and rose again, the disciples ask him in Acts chapter 1, will you restore the kingdom at this time? And this is what he tells them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus says the Son doesn't know. And here's the point. If that's true, you don't know. Don't pretend like you're smarter than the angels and definitely don't pretend like you're smarter than Jesus. Live with uncertainty about the end. Verse 33 tells us that the result of this uncertainty is that we are to be on guard. 
We are to stay awake, be vigilant, be watchful, because you do not know when that time will come. You have no clue, and there is no sign necessary before that next step in God's plan commences. Have we lost a sense of urgency as Christians? I remember growing up, I don't know about you, but I remember growing up, I heard this emphasis a lot. Christ will come at any moment, so be ready. And it served as a wake-up call to me many times. It clarifies what's most important. It pushes me toward obedience and shakes me out of laziness. Granted, I think, you know, sometimes it was a scare tactic, right? We all know the videos, movies of people disappearing in the middle of a worship service, right? <laughs> I was too little for this at the time, but I'm told that the movie, I think it was called The Thief in the Night, right? Does anyone? I haven't seen it, but I heard that it gave, gave kids nightmares for years. <laughs> I think it's possible for the truth to be over-sensationalized, leading people to make decisions out of emotion or fear rather than obedience, but... I think we would do well as Christians to renew in our minds a sense of urgency that we don't know. And we should live like we don't know. We should live with uncertainty about when Christ will return. And Jesus uses an example to communicate this truth for us. Look in Mark chapter 13, verses 34 through 37. Again, he says, it's like a man going on a journey. And when he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. He commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So therefore, stay awake. You don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. In other words, there's an absolute certainty that the master will come, but there's an absolute uncertainty about when the master will come. And in the meantime, the master ta tasks his servants with responsibilities, each with his work. Don't be sleeping when he returns. And then he gives this exhortation in verse 37, which is fascinating. He says, what I say to you, disciples, I say to all. Right, so he universalizes this exhortation. He says, disciples, this is for you. I'm saying it to you, but what I say to you, I say to everyone, stay awake, watch. You have no clue when the master will come. What would happen? How would it impact our lives if we lived a life of uncertainty about when Christ will come? It will produce a watchfulness and a focus. It will fight off laziness. We see this all throughout Scripture. Don't be a sleepy Christian. Don't be like those in 2 Peter that says, when is the sign of his coming? When will these things, these things be? All things have continued since the beginning of creation until now. A watchful Christian focuses on loving others and serving others. The church. And you may think, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a very urgent thing. That sounds like a pretty normal Christian life thing. If I'm watchful and, and, and alert, you know, I'm, I'm going to be running around screaming, the end is coming, the end is coming. Why am I talking about loving others and serving the church? Well, because that's what scripture says a watchful Christian does. When you live in reality of the end, that Christ could return at any moment, do you know what it prompts you to do? Do you know what it means to stay watchful and awake and alert, as Jesus tells his disciples? 
First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Peter says this, The end of all things is at hand. There's the urgency. There's the uncertainty. At hand means it's, it could be any moment. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The end is near, so invite someone over to your home. Do those two connect in your mind? And as each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. What does a watchful Christian do? If you live with uncertainty, Christ may return at any moment. What's it going to do? It's going to prompt you to live with the right priorities in mind, to focus on what's most important. And what's most important for us as Christians is to love each other, is to serve his church. That's what urgent, watchful Christians do. A sleepy Christian, rather than loving others, serving the church, will hold grudges, grumble against others, not serve others, look only out for themselves. What else will a watchful, alert Christian do? Romans 13, 11 through 14 tells us that a watchful Christian takes holiness seriously and kills fleshly desires. Well, a sleepy Christian, you know what a sleepy Christian is going to do? Indulge the flesh. Fight with others. Listen to Romans chapter 13, 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that a great truth? You're one day closer to Christ's return. And he says this, the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So, therefore, let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so you might ask yourself, how do I know if I'm being a sleepy Christian? How do I know if I'm living with uncertainty or not? Use these passages as a litmus test for you. Are you indulging in the flesh? Are you living for yourself? Well, what does that show? You have no sense of urgency about Christ's return. You're living for the here and now. You're selfish. You're not loving and serving others. What does that show? You have no sense of what's most important. And then finally, Hebrews 10, 25 tells us that a watchful Christian assembles with believers and encourages them. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. When you see the day approaching, that uncertainty, it should prompt you to not neglect the meeting of yourselves together, but encouraging one another. And even as that sense of urgency elevates, you encourage each other all the more. Are you a watchful Christian? Or are you a sleepy Christian? So our passage today speaks of both certainty and uncertainty. And the Christian should be marked by both. 
when we are certain that God's word stands forever, outliving the very heavens and earth, that his will is written in heaven and all that he says will come to pass, it will make a difference in how we live. So we as Christians, what should we do? We should live with the peace and the trust that comes from a certainty in the word of Christ. And when we are uncertain about the final day, when God's final chapter for creation commences, that will make a difference in how we live as well. Live with the urgency and watchfulness that comes from the uncertainty about the return of Christ. God has given us his word, and we can be sure of that. Does that change how you live? Does that change how you approach each day? That Christ's word is the one that lasts? This world is passing away? What are you sure about in your life? If God and his word is not the first thing on that list, then your priorities are off, and you're probably living for something other than you should. Do you live with a sense of uncertainty? A sense of, Christ could come at any moment. I don't want him to catch me sleeping. I want to be awake. I want to be watchful. I'm going to be loving and serving and encouraging one another. I'm going to be shaking off the works of darkness. I'm not going to be indulging in the flesh like I've got the rest of my life ahead of me and all that matters is my own desires. No, I'm going to shake those off. I'm going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to walk in the daytime. I'm going to focus on what's the most important because there's coming a day when my Savior will come for me. And I'll be brought up to gather with him and other believers in the clouds. And so shall I ever be with the Lord. And I will see him face to face, the one who died for me, the one who gave his life for my sins on the cross. I will see him face to face. And what will matter in that moment? Not the things I'm living for now. Orient your life now on the realities that will be yours one day. And those realities are, Christ is coming. You will be with him forever. So live like it. Live with the certainty of his word and live in the uncertainty of when it will happen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your truth guides and directs our life. Lord, we so very easily get lazy. We so very easily lose focus what a thought that you could return before this day is out. You could return before I finish this prayer. Oh Lord, orient our lives with the urgency and uncertainty that flows from that certainty that you may come at any moment. We thank you that you've given us your eternal word that we can live by it and rely on it and be changed by it.